This is Channel 5, KTLA, Los Angeles. Channel 5 presents Movies Till Dawn for your late-night entertainment. Tonight, The Deadly Mantis, starring Craig Stevens and William Hooper. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm exhausted. This is part two of a conversation I had with my friend and, and compadre and collaborator, Andy Garcia. And, and he talks about a lot of interesting things here. We talk about Francis Coppola. Uh, we talk about Andy's beautiful movie, The Lost City. We talk about uh, his movie with James Gandolfini and it was Sidney Lumet directed Night Falls on Manhattan. Um, but before we get into any of that, I, I talked at the, the at the beginning of the previous conversation about how I met Andy and how we got our movie City Island launched. Uh, we crossed paths once before. What I'm talking about is the 63rd Academy Awards, which was uh, held on March 25, 1991, at the Shrine Auditorium. And uh, a lot of cool movies from that year were nominated. Reversal of Fortune, Godfather Three, uh, The Grifters, and Dances with Wolves, which took all of it. You know, and it's kind of amazing to look at, you know, they were all Hollywood movies. They were all studio movies, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, but one of the uh, one of the best short films of the year was, was my AFI uh, graduate film, Bronx Cheers. To my astonishment, we got nominated for a best live action short film. And so my producer, Matthew Gross, and I wound up going to the ceremony. Uh, and Andy was there. We didn't meet each other. I just always think it's sort of funny in retrospect that, you know, how we cross paths. Uh, Andy was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. The first thing that's weird is we get out of the limo and everyone takes our pictures and screams at us like we're important. We're like one of the nominees for Best Short Film, but nobody cares. They just know that you're getting out of the limo and you're in the tuck, so you must be somebody. Right away, it was like bad LSD. Like it was, just, like it was just. Also, it's like at three in the afternoon. At least it was then. So you know, the whole thing is just off. You know, and 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 the limo, and we're twenty five years old, and everyone thinks we're someone who we're not. Uh, but you know, it's the Oscars. Aren't we happy to be there? Well, of course we were. So we get inside, and finally the whole thing begins. And what's hard to understand, and I don't know if it still works this way, but it probably does, is. Of course you're all excited to be there if you're nominees, but once the categories start being announced and winning, like four out of five people lose, and the energy in the room changes. Like very soon you just feel this really negative, disappointing thing going on in the room. And it, how can you help it? Like people, they build up their whole life, they get to the Oscars, and right away everyone's losing. It just happens. And I, I noticed, and we were still a few awards back then. The live action was pretty early in the program, but we were still five or six awards in. And I started seeing that when categories lost, people left. They did not sit there. And I thought, that's strange. Like, because we're at the Oscars, you're supposed to stay because you're a good sport, and this is all comradeship, and this is, 
how we support each other as artists. Bullshit. You get out of the room. You don't want to sit there. You lost. I'm going to sit there for another two hours and watch this crap like I lost. And now I got to deal with everyone calling me going like, you should have won. You know what's going to happen, you know. So I thought, well, no, this is just bad sportsmanship, you know. And then our category came up and we lost. I, you know, it, like, I can't say that I was like heartbroken. I was shocked that we were there at all. But once you lose, like the whole, the, like the energy goes out of it. You're just, you know, so it only took another couple of categories. And I looked at my producer and friend and I was just like, really? And he said, no, let's go to the bar. So, like, we left, too. Now, what they did, because you're on TV, is they had these stand-ins. And they were in touches, like, standing by, because clearly this happened every year. So as soon as you left your seat, quickly two people took your seat wearing the, the, the tux. And, you know. So it wasn't a tragedy for you to leave for the Oscar telecast. It just looked like there were still a bunch of people in tuxes sitting there. They didn't really notice that I left. And... I realized then that by the end of the night, when you get to the really important things, the best director and stars and actors and actors, there's 60, 70% of the audience are stand-ins applauding. Everyone was at the bar. And they weren't happy. It wasn't like there was any fun going on at the bar. They were pissed, you know. Uh that's the end of my Oscar story. It's not, you know, it, it didn't, uh, listen, It did it have a happy ending? Yes. Every time my name is in print in like, you know, a little article about something I'm trying to do, it always says Academy Award nominee Raymond Deflet. Well, this was like 30 years ago for my 20-minute film. But if I do get a, a proper obit when I die, it'll be Oscar-nominated filmmaker. And it all goes back to that night where Andy Garcia was also there. I know we didn't meet each other on that night, but uh, it took a while, but eventually we did, and I'm glad we did. Here's part two of my conversation with Andy Garcia. Francis is, is everything in, in one, in a sense. I, you know, to me, Francis is like, if there was, you know, if you went to Mount Olympus of film directors, you know, Francis would be Zeus. Because he has, uh, not, not because necessarily because he's better than the other guy. It's just his nature. He he's like a he's like a professor, you know. And to me, in the experience I had, you know, the way he talks about how the way he sets up a scene before you even go into it, you know, and the, the historical elements of it, and he talks he talks all the way around, like if you're doing a play, you know, and he sets you up. Like I remember when we were doing the the sequence at the end with with. Uh, Godfather Three, he said it was an homage to the Red Shoes, and 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 Michael Powell and why it was and and that that movie inspired him to think about doing this sequence with the opera and and the shooter and all that as one set piece. And but Francis is very you know he's very intuitive with his actors. You know he taught me a thing which was I still use to this day. You know because we worked about it where he used to say. You know, actors, you know, you do the scene and after a while he'd go, actors, free take. And he just wanted you to, you know. So that's where that came from yeah. because you say it. Yeah. And, and and guess what? I say it now. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And it, they, they're delighted. They're you know, delighted. Yeah, actors, free take, do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and one time he said, uh, sometimes I even do editors, free take, which is 
the actors play the scene without any dialogue at all. You know, that's interesting. I just heard about that from someone who had worked with Gus Van Sant, mm. and he calls it the silent take. Right. Let's do one now without dialogue. I thought that was just brilliant. Yeah. My Does that daughter, work? I mean, is it... Yeah, because, because they can cut to you at any point. The, the editor can cut to you at any time. You know, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, my daughter, Daniela, which you know, just finished doing a movie with Gus Van Sant. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know Daniela was in a movie. Yeah? Yeah. Just this last one with uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Right. Uh, he's a wonderful director. Very hu- humanist, you know, behavioralist. Uh, but Francis, I mean, Francis is an extraordinary, you know, in all aspects of storytelling, you know, he was just, you know, he's, like I said, he's Zeus. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, and he cares about young people and young artists. Uh, one time we made a movie, uh, with Richard Wank, writer-director friend of mine, the first movie I produced with him, with me as a producer and him as a... Just a as, ticket. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we showed it. To, we sold it to MGM, and we sold it to Francis, who was on the board. We sold it to UA, who was on the board. And Frank Senior wanted Francis to see it, and he came in, and and uh, he spent the entire night with Richard, just to say, "You want to review the movie to see if there's any different alternative way of fit ending it or whatever." And he and he and he said, "Meet me over here." And he spent the entire night. I'm talking about to the early morning hours with Richard in the cutting room. He wanted to see the, the, he watched the assembly of the film and then he started to reassemble the movie with him and say, how do you want to think about it? How do you want to end it, start the movie? He goes, oh, I'd like to start over there. He goes, okay, put that scene over there. Now, where do you want to go? He goes, well, I'd like to go over there. He goes, you want to go over there? Where else do you think you could go? And he just kind of, and at the end of the day, the movie stayed the way it was. Right. But he showed the, the, the possibilities of things that if you take things out or if you move them around, how they can empower a film, you know, like just like he talks a lot about what happened in 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 The Godfather, Part Two, about that initially it was intercut the president the past many more times, and he said the movie wasn't really ever working well enough, and then it wasn't until they cut in bigger chunks yeah. that the movie really took off for him. Uh He's, you know, to me, he, he, along with Hal, I would say, are my two greatest inspirations, you know, as as directors, you know, in in very similar ways. If you think about it, they kind of come, although Hal was older than him, they both have this sort of experimental, you know, push the envelope kind of framework in in what they aspire to. Mm. I mean, Francis always says that he was... He just wanted to make little independent movies, you know, that he got sucked into the Godfather world. You yes, know. he makes it out as if, like, the Godfather was his big sellout. Yeah. I'm always so surprised when he says things. like He had to. He, I think they were the, the company was broke. He was broke. I mean, yeah. everyone said, Francis, if you don't go do this movie, we're going to have to shut Zoetrope down, you know. Yeah, and they're great, uh, uh, you know, miscasting ideas that the movie started oh, yeah. with. Ryan O'Neill was going to be sure. James Caan, and Kirk Absolutely. Douglas was going to be Marlon Brando or something like that. You know, it, it, yeah, it, it's it's they don't, they didn't want Brando in the movie at all. He had, he snuck in a screen test and they didn't even recognize him. Right. Yeah, all those stories are great, and they're all documented in a documentary that that comes along with the film. Two epics. And now...
Paramount Pictures presents the continuation of Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo's legendary saga. Like in the mid '80s or, or early '80s, there was a, a there was like this rumor of Godfather Three, right? And I thought, oh. And there was a rumor there was a young guy, which eventually I guess was the part that I ended up playing. But I remember as an actor thinking, as every actor in the, in the world probably thought, you know, it wasn't just me going, oh, that's the part. That's you know, that's my part. I got to play that part. I was such a Godfather one and two fanatic still I am uh, but it, I wasn't alone everybody was you know but I would you know like like most actors will, will talk about films somehow I had this deep connection to it you know and and anyway so they were mentioning Stallone and Travolta and all this and I'm going well I was really just an actor off the street I hadn't done anything and a bit part here and there I was doing improvisational theater at the comedy store in the, in the house group there, just trying to make my way in town, you know. I didn't really have an agent. And anyway, so that went away. It didn't happen. And then I was doing uh, internal affairs. And I had done about, let me see, I had done uh, The Untouchables and Black Rain. Then they wrote internal affairs. They developed that for me. With Frank Mancuso Jr. was producing it. And Gary Lucchese was the head of production at the time. And... Uh, Frank Sr., who I'd become friendly with, who is like my godfather, really, to this day. He's like a second father to me. He came to the set and he said, what are you doing in September? Because I, I want to talk to Francis. I want you to play Vincent in The New Godfather, the young. And I looked at him and I said, let me get back to him. Let me check my schedule. I'll get back to you. <laughs> And he started laughing, and I said, I'd be honored. Are you kidding me? I said, this is the reason why I wanted to become an actor, was to make movies like... It was those movies that made me make the leap into studying to become an actor, basically. Sure. Yeah, especially one, because it came out first. And that was the time I was coming out of high school and getting into college. And uh, so it began. That was May, around May. The movie was going to start rehearsal in September. And uh, it began the process. Uh, he started screen testing actors, because obviously everybody wanted that, but who wouldn't want that part, you know? And, uh, and I didn't get to meet him until like August. <laughs> I couldn't, you know, I kept saying to my agent, why, why can't I just go screen test? You know, if Francis, I became, I think I became the actor that the studio wanted, like in Godfather 1, you know? Right. You know, that he was resisting. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the studio. Paramount it, wants him for the. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so oh, here comes the Paramount choice again, and uh, and he was probably I don't know what Francis was thinking. I'm just thinking, oh, you know. Meanwhile, the head of the studio wants me to do it, and that's like the worst recommendation you can possibly right. have. Weird. How, who else was testing? Do you know? Everybody, I'm sure tested. Everybody tested for that part. I would imagine anybody who could be close to playing him probably tested. I mean, they tested a lot of people. Mickey tested, I think, also. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I knew Fred Roos, and he knew me. So Fred maybe said some things to Francis. But then I went, I was on holiday, and, and they called and said, Francis would like to meet you, and I went and met with him. And it was a very nice meeting, just a personal thing. I remember he had one of those first laptops, IBM laptops. 
And we would talk a little bit. And he says, I saw your movie, The Untouchables, and say thank you very much. And I don't know if he mentioned anything else. And every time I would say something or something, he'd go, he'd kind of nod and type some stuff into the computer and then come back up and spoke. And he was very, just, it was a beautiful meeting, no reading or anything. Thank you very much for coming in. And I left. And more people tested and went on and on. And now was Labor Day weekend coming up. And uh, on a Thursday morning, I get a call from my agency. Says, uh, uh, they want you on a plane to test tomorrow morning, Friday morning. So uh, they made it. You had to do like a test deal. They made a deal. I got on the plane. I tested with uh, Madeline Stowe playing Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, I finished. I was very comfortable. I was very proud of how it went. I was, you know, I gave it all I got, you know, and I, was, I felt good about it. And uh, Fred Roos comes in the room and says, uh, Francis would like you to stay for dinner. His films have shaped the way America sees its justice system. Serpico. Guilty as sin. The verdict. Power. Q&A. Network. The legendary filmmaker whose vision has inspired a generation. Sidney Lumet. Now, one of the world's most acclaimed directors takes you inside the courtroom once again. Andy Garcia, Richard Dreyfus. Night Falls on Manhattan. That's a terrific film, Night Falls on Manhattan. I rewatched yeah. it recently. Really? It's got James Gandolfini. Like when it's only a few years before The Sopranos, but he feels like an entirely different character oh, yeah. actor, you know. He was a lovely guy, James, you know. We rehearsed that movie for two weeks, yeah. twice a day, like a play. And when we shot the movie, I would say 97.5% of the movie was done in one take. One take. Not that he picked take one. One take. Right, right. He had no monitors. He sat, he, he sat next to the camera, or stood, I should say. Next to the it just legs. looked like he was sitting since yeah. he was five yeah. foot two or whatever. Yeah. Right, he just lay looking, like, you know, next to the camera, looking right at you, and he, the take would be over, and he go check the front. Good work. Okay, moving on. Didn't you ever want another take though? Yeah, sometimes I would. I've asked. I would ask. And what the, would he? Would he? The would first he... time I asked, he said, "Don't need it, kid." <laughs> and I said, "Sydney, I, that was that was not, you know, I'd, I'd like to take another shot." And he says, "Okay," so we did it. And he says, "You were right. Print that one." <laughs> and walked away. And he was a character. I, but you I know, spoke. I spoke to to Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus, about him, and he yeah. was very frustrated by that. He, oh he didn't, yeah. He didn't. I don't think he cared for the experience. He he wanted to do. And I know him now as an actor. He wanted to play. He wants to. He wants to have fun doing it. He wants yeah. to keep trying stuff. Well, you were expanding your drug empire. And I quote, one block at a time. Did you ever kill anybody? Your Honor, I am instructing my client not to answer that question on the grounds of self-incrimination. Are you pleading the Fifth Amendment, Mr. Washington? you ever order anyone killed? Same instructions, Your Honor. Fifth Amendment. When you were in jail for assault with a deadly weapon, did you ever kill anybody? Fifth Amendment. When your turf was firmly established and you were now numero uno, top dog, kingpin, MM, did you ever kill anybody? Did you ever order anybody? Fifth Amendment. Say nothing of this. We'll ask questions and wait for responses in a civilized way. Your Honor, the, the prosecutor is baiting Sit my Sit down, Mr. Vigoda. I'll run this courtroom with no help from you nor anyone. But the rehearsal process it was wide open, and if he, if he saw something interesting, he'd say, mark that, that's it. Right. And uh, he'd pick his angles. You know, Sydney's movies have hardly any music in it, if any. And, you know, 
he could be in a wide shot in the scene. That's all he shoots, you know. And then he'll come into two overs, which you shoot simultaneous. You know, me and you talking right now. He'd have a camera on you and me. And one take, boom, we're out of here. He always, and if you read his book on directing, I read it before going to work with him. It's exactly what he did when, you know, and he starts the movie in a big wide shot exterior. And, you know, I got to the set. It was me pulling up in a taxi in front of the police station. You know, everybody was ready. The people were, it was on the, on the boom. The camera operator was already on the, everybody was just waiting for me to show up on eight o'clock set call. They were just waiting there like that. I show him the set, on the set, he gives me a big kiss, several kisses, <laughs> slobbers all over me every day. The wonderful mensch, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and he said, you remember where we got? He goes, yeah, I got it. And he said, okay, let's go. Got in the cab, pulled up, walked up the, the stairways, cut, checked the front, company move. <laughs> Moved. You know, usually a company move is at lunch. Yeah. Company move at 810. <laughs> Another part of the city. And he says he does that to set, like, this is how this is going to go. Right. Where this is D-Day, and we're wrapping at 3.30 every day, and we're going. And the funny thing was that Ron Liebman, who wonderful actor, he had this one two-page monologue where he'd, he would rant and rage around the, the district attorney's table with all his assistant DAs. Right. And he's walking around there and just ranting and raging, as Ronnie can do very well. And he called someone my Hebraic friend. Yeah, my in that scene, I was always stuck in my <laughs> yeah, head. Yeah, that was his adversary. And he spits coming out of his mouth. He's so angry, you know, and he, so he does his long take and all the assistant district attorneys, me included, are sitting there just nodding our head. We don't say nothing. He's just kind of going after this, uh, uh, this uh, character played by Colin Fury. <laughs> and he says... Uh, and then he finishes, and he, and Sydney comes over, and he says, uh, "That was great, Ranya. You want to go again?" And I went, "Did he just ask him actually to go again?" And I said, "That was curious. He's never asked me if I want to go again, you know. And I'm in every scene of this movie." And so I said, "Okay, let him go again. It's a long speech. It's fine. I don't care, you know." But I was just curious. So he did it, and then he did another take. Beautiful. Came over again. He was, "That was great. You want to you want to try another one?" And I'm going, so he does the third take, and then he comes again, he goes, i do one more. <laughs> and I, all of a sudden I stood up and I said, in the middle of the cat, I said, I said, hold on, wait a second now, wait a second. Wait a second, do you have to be a New York Jew to get an extra take in this movie? <laughs> and he said, you got it, kid. <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> but he was wonderful, man. He would, every Friday I was commuting, my kids were very young, and I was commuting from New York to L.A., for a good part of the movie until the Thanksgiving break came, which happened to be during the shooting. And then they came out. So he would say, what's your reservation today? And I go, I got a 6.30 out of JFK. He goes, double book yourself on the 4 o'clock. <laughs> Every Friday would <laughs> and say would he, And would he make it? All the time. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, because he wanted to go to the Hamptons and, he, and, and you know, come 3 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever it was, you know. That's funny. Yeah, he he. There's a there's a video. Uh, um, it's a on the set behind the scenes uh, short of Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, really? You can I find it on YouTube. That. I'll send it to you. Oh. it's it's kind of it's crazy because he's literally j jumping up and down through the crowd. He's got the, all the spectators outside the bank when Pacino's like first coming out, right. and Dern, Charles Durning is trying to get him out. And but you got to see like Lumet in action and, and and with a cigarette in his mouth at the same time. Like he's getting he, the crowd going. Cr yeah. 
Yeah, with a bullhorn, yeah. like old school director with bullhorn, yeah. and 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 just like kicking the shit out of everyone. Listen to me, what's going on? Hurry up, get over here! Helicopters overhead, cops on the street. It's really madness. It's a wonderful, wonderful. And I'm piece sure of Charles Durney is going. I'm going to play the scene like that. Probably, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, because they're probably feeding off that energy. Oh, yeah. he was incredible. He was a real general. You know, it's like you were. He was Patton, and we and we were just his soldiers. And let's go. Right. He was, uh, he was incredible. It was an incredible experience. And also, we had great actors in the movie. You were mentioning Gandolfini also in it, you know, and Le Lena Olin and Ian Holm, who played my father. And uh, he did a thing in the movie. I mean, James was, a, was such a wonderful actor. He was painfully shy. Yeah. Especially at that time, painfully shy. And we'd go out to lunch and stuff like that. And he, he you know, he would say, oh, I was, you know, I'm so nervous. I got, you know. He's so wonderful actor. Such a great, great actor. And, uh, and Ian Holm, there was, there's a shot in the movie, I don't know if you remember this, where Ian, my father, playing my father, is in a, in a gurney with a bunch of tubes in him, so he's been shot, right? And I go visit him in the hospital, and he's got a camera looking down at him at the gurney, and one camera across him towards me, and I'm like Kilroy, you know, with my hands on the gurney, sitting down talking to him. And uh, we start playing the scene. So two cameras going, one take, the one that's in the movie. And uh, we start playing the scene. And I say, I got to go, go, Pop, and at the end of the thing. He said, I got to go, Pop. And Ian improvises a line. And he just says to me, I love you, my son. And when he said that, it just floored me, you know, I just lost it. And because I didn't, somehow didn't want him to see that I was l losing it, I, I went down, my head, you know, I took my head down. And all you, you know, from, so the camera is not looking just like at the top of my head for like 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I mean, it was a quite a long period of time until I could gather myself. And then I come up and I say, I love you too, Pops. And I go and I leave. And uh, I guess I was, I was crying and stuff. And, and if you watch the movie, I don't know if you remember, but if you watch the movie, when that happened, Sydney never cut away. He just stayed on my top of my head. He just stayed there with the right. camera. You could have you shortened that and still got the effect of me coming back up. You could have cut back to the top shot and then come back to the thing. But once it happened, he just... He just sat there. He, yeah, he, he liked the truth of it. Yeah, yeah, because he said, why, why dilute it with a cut, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that to Sydney. I said, you know, I would say a, a majority of the people would try to shorten that, you know? And he looked at me like saying, not me, kid. Right, right. You know? I read a book, obviously my love for, for Cuba and its culture sure. and its music and, and the history of it. And I always thought that there was a movie very much using sort of stylistically an amalgamation of, of movies like Casablanca, The Godfather, and Cabaret. So you'd have sort of a cabaret owner, mm -hmm. like Rick, and you'd have a family saga at the at the brink or during the transition, you know, from Batista to Castro, 
and that family becomes a microcosm with what sort of ha what happened in the country and how sometimes brother turned against brother and people died and and at the end of the day there is the protagonist goes into exile and basically rebuilds his culture where he is and there's several lines that explain that in the movie like uh, Bill Murray who plays sort of like the Cabaret Infante character and he said he says why not you know you can't relive it but you can rebuild it you know mm -hmm. and and he does the character sort of rebuilds his club in New York and there's a beautiful line that he wrote saying uh Ines Sastre, who's my sort of my the impossible love in the movie, she's like the metaphor for Cuba. You can be with her, you can you can love her, but you can't be with her, you know, mm. because if you be with her, then you have to transform, you have to be succumb to what it's become, and so it's kind of a story of impossible love. When we have this argument, not argument, discussion in in exile, she comes to visit, and she's a member of the government there now, and she says, "I know you don't believe in causes." And he says, uh, I don't believe in lost causes, but I believe in lost cities. And that's my cause and my curse. So it's that kind of the thing. It's the, it's the, the conceit that, that, you know, the tragedy of exile is exile. You know, there's, you love people who, who cannot live in the country that they most cherish and most love because of the situation that that country finds itself in. And it would be a tremendous compromise to to you know give up your freedom to go be live in that situation you know the last thing that we said to me before he died what he made me promise that if anything ever happened to him i would take care of you You've grown up in Havana all your life, and I bet there's parts of the city you don't know at all. I'm sure you know them well. Mm -hmm. Havana is very much like a rose. It has petals and it has thorns, so it depends on how you grab it. But in the end, it always grabs you. And so I always thought that there was a movie there, you know, that, and when I started to get an opportunity to get a little bit of attention as an actor, I approached Paramount and uh, Frank Mancuso Sr., who was at the time, and I told him the idea, and he said, great, find the writer. And I had read this book by Infante, a couple of his books, one called Three Trap Tigers, and um, A View of Dawn, Dawn in the Tropics, which was an alternative title to the movie that I liked. And there were anecdotes and short stories about Havana in the 50s, which he lived, you know, and wrote a lot about. And I went to visit him. He wasn't a, a prolific screenwriter, but he wrote Vanishing Point, and he wrote the first draft to Under the Volcano for Joseph Losey. But he was a big, he was a film critic in Cuba. He started the Cuban Cinematheque. He was big. He wrote under a pseudonym named G. Kane, hmm. G. Kain, C-A-I-N. And a great uh, critic. And so he liked the idea, and we began to work. And, and uh, like I said, he delivered a 300-page first draft that he didn't want to cut. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that was a process, you know. And that began. It began the journey, and it took me. But then nobody, you know, Frank, Frank Sr. left, uh, was no longer at Paramount, and I could never get anybody interested in the piece. It took me 16 years of my life to get it, finally get uh, someone to support it, you know. Mm.
Yeah, because I saw, I guess, 2005. Yeah, that's, that's when, when it was came released. Out, right? yeah, that's Which was before I knew you. Yeah. I wrote you, I wrote you a fan letter. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm still waiting for you to answer. But, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, 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 I was so surprised that, that, that I had a fan. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know the, the great thing, uh, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of that movie, but I just remember that when I approached Bill Murray for it, he said, uh, he finally, he said, we should work together. He goes, well, Bill, I have this project, you know, and I said, you know, I finally got the money and there's a part in there that, you know, you could be the greatest for and all that. And I'd be honored if you consider it, you know, so he said, send it to me. So a couple of months go by and he calls me on the phone and he says, uh, uh, hello? He says, Andy Garcia? And I go, yes. He goes, Bill Murray. And he goes, hey, Bill, how you doing? He says, I'm fine. I read your script. It's one of the most interesting scripts I've read in years. No one's going to see this movie, but I'd like to be in it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, he, and he came and showed up, and he was great. He was a prince. Did he you shoot a, it? You had to probably shoot him out fairly quickly? or? Well, yeah. We, I, I concentrated his work. It was a couple of weeks. He, he, had, he's, I, I, he had a ball. He went to the Dominican Republic. You know, Bill, he, he, was, uh, he, he, he was a prince to me, and he's great in the film. And, and the same with Dustin Hoffman, who came and played Meyer Lansky in a couple of days. I, I talked to Dustin, and he said, if I'm available, I'll do it, but only on one condition. And what? He says, you must come to my daughter's wedding. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we were shooting. It just so happened that his daughter's wedding ended up while we were shooting. So we, I flew back for the weekend from the Dominican Republic, went to his daughter's wedding, and then on Sunday, me and Dustin flew back and shot Monday, Tuesday, just me, him, and, and Bill, and we wrapped. Right. You shot the film quickly. 35 days, yeah. Yeah, and it's a three-hour movie. Close. It's, yeah, well, the, 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 the first cut was three hours, but yeah. it ended up 220. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was a lot of material, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of dancing and shootouts, and we moved fast. We got lucky, the weather. As soon as we wrapped, the next, within the next two days, it was like a typhoon came in through the Dominican Republic. And was it, was it independently financed the way... We did yeah. our movie, like just pieced together with different it, it, it was foreign sales by, and equity. No, and, no, no. It was financed strictly by one financier, uh, Mr. Tom Gores, who was a, a patron to the to the cause. Oh. And his partner, Johnny Lopez, is uh, Cuban-American also. And that was it. He just believed in me and the movie. And he was like, uh, like I was sent for Cachao. He was sent, you know, through his brother, Sam Gores, who was my agent at the time. And... and he just wanted to do it. He wanted to support it. He believed in it. And uh, if not, the movie might still be struggling to get made. Who distributed it? Uh, Magnolia Pictures. Magnolia, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Lionsgate International was the foreign sales. How did you feel about how they did uh, in terms of getting it out there? Well, it was a platform release. With uh, they were very, they, you know, the movie was seen mostly in their theater chain was about 350 chains right. it was never really broke out further than that there was limited funds to advertise it but the movie has been seen all over the world you know and to this day people still talk to me about it and well i think it's a movie that has you know has legs as they say because yeah. the, you know it's, it doesn't date obviously it's no. very beautiful it's an elegy you know and and the and the more interest develops in in the subject which is always getting more interesting Cuba, yeah. to to everyone yeah it's, it's, it's one of the few movies if, if if not the only one that's really been done about that time period first of all outside of cuba that time period has probably only been done a couple times mm -hmm. 
I mean, the, the movie Havana was done by Sidney Pollack, but this comes from an American point of view of what, you know, it's so like you're following an American character. I'm talking about following, you know, Cubans in Cuba. Right. There's a movie by Gutierrez Alea, Memories of Underdevelopment, was done in Cuba just after the revolution. But uh, very few, you know, so that story is now... My brother, my son told me recently that uh, he was told by... that they were seeing the movie and a friend of his, who's 15 years old, my son, was they, they watched the movie in school. That's great. Yeah, here in Los Angeles, some hmm. teacher said, oh, well, you know what's happening in Cuba? Let's look at this movie, watch. You know, it kind of tells you what went down. Did you store up the music that you loved, knowing you were going to get a lot of it into a movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I love doing that. I have songs yeah. in my head that I'm waiting to find a movie to pop into. Oh, yeah, into, completely. Right? No, uh, the reason why the movie exists is is to showcase the movie, the, the music. music. Right, right. The, mu the music is a character in the piece. And in fact, the way it was designed, and this was also the 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 idea when the when Cabrera Infante, Guillermo Cabrera Infante, the writer, the great Cuban writer who's passed away, gave me the first draft, which was 300 pages long. He had musical annotations with lyrics in the draft hmm. that commented on the scene. You follow? So yep. if you, if, if, and that's what I was doing also, you know? So it was like, and some of those songs that he wrote were in the movies, but the idea of that sustained itself. So if you listen to the music in The Lost City when you watch the movie, if you happen to know Spanish, you'll see that it's like a, a narrative. The music has a narrative voice in it. It's a character in the piece. Yeah, all, it all, it's all and, tied together. And the strongly, lyrics, yeah. and also the lyrics. You know, the lyrics in the song. Little, and sometimes they're just little, you know, uh, there's a character named, his nickname is Candela, played by Julio Oscar Mechoso, who's the villain, who's the Batista colonel based on of an actual person named Coronel Ventura, who was a you know harsh you know fixer for uh, for Batista, and uh, in our in our movie, his name is Candela, which means fire, and I use a Chapotin song, a little like a soundbite, you know, just like a thing, that the chorus says, "Tú no juegues conmigo, que yo como candela," which means that don't play with me, I eat fire, <laughs> and. Uh, so those kind of little things are uh, inherent all through the movie. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in a longer format, you know, it's the whole, the whole song, and other times just like little, you know, just like little accents. Did you clear all the music first? Yes, of course. Yeah, no, yeah there was a lot of money to so clear. You knew, the music. But you knew going in exactly what songs you were going to be using. A so. lot of them. Sometimes I substitute, but I had a whole you know grab bag. Plus, I had the stuff, the stuff that I had been working with Kachao and the four albums we did were songs also that I was going to put in the movie. Like mm -hmm. the movie ends in a rumba called, that was called Cuba Linda, beautiful Cuba, and that's how them, and with the Jose Marti poetry. And I did all that already in the album. I just took it from the album and put it in the movie. Right. Yeah. Cuba Linda de mi vida Cuba Linda siempre te recordaré Cuba Linda We were supposed to go to New York for one week to shoot from the Dominican Republic. And as you know, when you move a new location, you have to have a, a crew prepping before you get there. This is a, quite an expense. And he said to me, he said, you know, if you could shoot New York in the Dominican Republic, if you could figure that out for yourself, you'll save yourself somewhere between six and eight hundred thousand dollars. 
or it was like 600 or something. And you can take that to post. You can license the music you want, which you're short in the budget on licensing. If you had to reshoot something, you'd have a little money to do that. And especially when he said about the music, I said, okay, let me figure it out. And I rewrote the, the, the exile part. Not the scenes, I just restaged them. Right. I, I couldn't do a walk and talk in Central Park with me and Bill Murray and have Meyer Lansky pull up in, in an old limo and force me into the car and leave, and leave Bill Murray walking his little uh, you know, shih tzu with a bodyguard right. with Central Park West in the background. Beautiful scene, you know? I couldn't do that. But I gave that up and staged it in the how place did, where How I did worked. the restaging Well, I, I staged it in Victor's Cafe where I was working, sure. mopping floors and stuff like that. And it just became more intimate, you know? The story beats were the same. Yeah. So instead of me see, going to see her at the plaza where she was staying, she surprised me at Victor's Cafe as I'm mopping the floors. Maybe the scene's even more poignant that way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there were some things that I, that, I, that I gave up. I shot New York with a camera from the top of a limo. I went to do a press for Oceans, one of the Oceans movies, 12 or 13, one of those. And uh, when I got there, I, I, they picked me up at JFK and uh, I stood, I told the limo player, go up, down, up and down Park Avenue. And I got up with a camera and just shot. And that's it, you got this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I shot some, you know, points of view of downtown. Then I went to the Jose Marti statue and shot that. And then, you know, cut to a restaurant in New York, you know. And I had, I had some establishing shots of Manhattan. The, the, the hotel was in the Dominican Republic. We brought snow in there. You know, we just made, made a movie. Yeah, movie it, magic, it, as they say. It, absolutely. It's, very, it's a very malleable form. People don't, if they're interested in the story, they don't really notice how little it takes to, to set the stage. But my favorite know. thing was that Valdemo Kalinowski was the production designer who's fantastic. I, well, I first worked with him on internal affairs. I said, you know, we found this corner in, in, the, in, the, in the banking district of Santo Domingo, in, this, in the capital. And because it's the banking district, a lot of the architecture is like Art Deco and it's not Spanish colonial because it was kind of built as a new republic, you know, kind of newer, you know. So we found this little corner. So I said to Valdemar, what if we put a, a subway exit across the street? I'll come out of the subway, you know, uh, stairs and walk right into this, ho this hotel that's here towards camera. We'll put snow and some traffic and people on the street it's in the middle of the night like three in the morning i've come you know from whatever whether it be jfk wherever i landed and i got in the subway with my little valise and that's all i have right and so i said build the subway station in the stairs so it could be not see-through bars but you know solid so because i'm going to be coming up the stairs there's no real stairs there you know just sidewalk right so i did you know my you know what I had learned in, you know, mind class in college, the old, you know, coming out of a suitcase trick, you know? <laughs> and that's how I... That's and that's how, what... Okay, and that's I got to see that again yeah. now. I got to watch that. And it's just that. me crouching up like that, you know, coming up. <laughs> and it works, you know, I've seen Bill Irwin do it a million times, you know? <laughs> so I said, we'll do that, and, and, and it plays, you know? Yeah, that's funny. And the snow is there. We brought it, it all looked great, you know, and... It was just a transition, you know, just to get you where he built this great hotel room that was really like coming to this dingy thing with a light bulb. It was great. So, you know, at the end of the day, you just tell the story, you know. Yeah. You got to tell the story. Well, you hang in with stuff. I mean, that's Lost City. You mentioned 
13 years. Oh, yeah. I know you've been working on your Hemingway movie, which I'm, I'm I, I wish you'd get to make already because I'm dying to see it. I you know. know you have to hang in. There's no other, you know, unless the studio says, well, can you want to start? You know, I always think of that line uh, that Sean Connery said in The Untouchables to Elliot Ness. He says, what are you prepared to do? <laughs> you know, you want to get Capone? What are you prepared to do? And I think that's every independent filmmaker is like, you want to make this movie? What, what are you prepared to do? That was the end of part two of my conversation with my friend and collaborator, Andy Garcia. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can access these conversations at iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, as well as our website, moviestilldawn.transistor.fm. If you'd like to see some videos pertaining to the guests of each episode, please visit my blog at moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. All interview material and audio clips are covered by the Fair Use Copyright Act of 1976, in which allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Mm-hmm.